Father, thank you for this opportunity to um, speak on something that is encouraging, that is exciting, um, to talk about things that are hard, but um, also that you exist in this kind of friction of hope um, and, and the lost, and uh, we're excited about walking through that as a church. Uh, Father, I pray that you would investigate our own hearts, um, our own minds, and our, our own souls, and the, remove the things from us that need to be removed, and put in the things that need to be changed. Uh, Lord, we want to be more like you and less like us, and so I pray that as we do that right now, as we um, walk through that this morning, that you would bless it, that you would bless us, and that we would be more in love with you as we leave um, and less in love with us um, from when we came. Thank you for all you do. It's in your name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So if you can believe it, I uh, got married, um, which is, uh, I think, a pretty incredible um, opportunity that my wife had. Um, <laughs> there it is. Okay. Uh, I got married, um, I guess it was 12 years ago, and the whole process was a blur. Like, if, if you are married or been married, you know that whole day, the reason that you get photographers and videographers, which, by the way, if you're getting married and need one, we've got an awesome one on staff. Um, his name's Dusty. He does all of our videos. He's incredible. Um, but if, if you've been there, you know that the reason you have photographers and videographers is because it is an absolute blur of a day. I, I don't. There's. I remember very little, very little about that day. I think we played golf. Um, we played golf, right, mom? Yeah, played golf, and then we ate like a early dinner. Yeah, my mom is here. Um, she comes every week. She's awesome. So, um, she's also here, so I don't lie to you. So if I say anything crazy, you can be like, "Your mom's here. Don't lie." Um, no. So we had we had dinner, and we played these musical instruments. Uh, and then I remember two things about my wedding. Well, three, but one of them is a different story. Um, Lane's dad is a wonderful person. And uh, anyways, <laughs> but I remember two things. I remember uh, walking out. Well, I remember seeing my wife walk toward me, first of all, which is awesome because I was like, great, she showed up. Um, but I remember before that, walking out and looking down at, at the crowd of the congregation of people and, and I was actually kind of emotional because I thought, man, this is everyone who's ever been a part of my life and everyone who's ever been a part of my wife's life. And they have decided to come to this place to celebrate and support us. And it was this beautiful kind of like, it was like almost you threw everybody in a cement mixer and just bounced them around and this came out, right? It was this kind of conglomeration of people who knew me as a, as a kid and knew my wife as a kid and people who I went to school with and my roommates and friends and folks that loved us. And then people had no idea who they were. Um, my mom uh, had, had, has a ton of siblings. They're an old Catholic family. Uh, my grandmother's joke was there's two things your grandfather liked. One was mashed potatoes, and so they have a bunch of kids. And there it is. I know. If it's your first time, you're like, okay, never coming back. Um, but I had a ton of kids, big, huge family. I've got cousins I think I've met once, maybe. Um, and then Lane's parents are... Uh, in all the, the cool groups in Columbia, and they've been there forever, and they know everyone, and her mom's a realtor as well. And so this wedding that we had literally was like, hey, here are the people to invite. <laughs> Book like this thick of just everyone. So we invited the entire Southeast to our wedding. And um, the cool moment was when you see all these people and you recognize, like, hey, they're here to support us. Like, like they're here because they want to be a part of this party, this feast, this, this, this just throw down that we're going to have to celebrate my wife and I becoming united as one. It was a really, really cool thing. Um, and so seeing all those different environments come together 
was a little bit, um, I don't know how to say it exactly, like kind of, it threw me off. I don't know a good word. Um, I don't have my vocabulary with me this morning, but um, left it at home. But it, it, it kind of threw me off and encouraged me and was exciting. And it was all of these things at once. And I thought, okay, this is one of the coolest moments of my life. Because all of these people are here celebrating one thing. And they're going to see my future wife walk down the aisle in a beautiful white gown. It was, really, it, was, it was a really interesting thing. And what also that did for me, as I thought about it, and you know, we watch our video and look through pictures and stuff, because that's what you do when you're in love. And, um, and, and the more I've thought about it, the more you, know, you hear in Scripture this consistent idea of, of a wedding and a wedding feast. And like Jesus is coming to get his bride, and that, that's what's going to rescue us out of this world. And I thought, man, what a, what a cool picture that we have this taste of something that is so incredible that we just can't even really fathom, but God in his goodness gives us a little kind of hint at it, a little shot at it. But the interesting thing that I think happens before that is, is that we see Jesus not just hanging out at the wedding, but we see him with people as well. Because you have to be with people to invite people to the wedding, right? Like if we didn't know people, no one would be there, which was okay for me. I would have taken the money and run anyways with my wife. She would have come with me. I'm going to be very clear about that this morning. But, but we had to be with people first in order to get them there. And so there's this verse as we, we're going to go to Matthew 22. Um, and if you have our app, it's in the sermon notes. You can click there. It's in the bottom right. If you don't, you should download it. Um, but it's just church app and it'll pull up Trailside Church. But there's a verse in Matthew 9:11 that's always kind of stuck to me and kind of hit me right in the heart um, before we get to Matthew 22 and talk about the wedding. And it's the, these religious people, the Pharisees, who, who come up and they speak to Jesus' disciples and they say in Matthew 9, verse 11, uh, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I've always thought that was really interesting because... If you're throwing a party, right, like if Jesus came to prep the party, get everything going, he chooses tax collectors and sinners, not the Pharisees. So I've always thought that was really interesting. And so we're going to read Matthew 22, starting in verse 1, with kind of that in mind here this morning. This is what it says. I'm going to read straight through, so hang with me. It's 14 verses, but I believe in you because you've had coffee probably. So here it is. And again, Jesus spoke to them, being people, in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called and few are chosen. Now, I know you hear that and you're like, wow, this is not going to be the encouraging sermon that I hoped for, but it is, so stay with me. All right? So Jesus is using a parable. It's uh, basically a, a story that Jesus tells in order to share a very big spiritual truth. And the reason he does that is because he's talking to just kind of normal people, right? Like, I, when I grew up, my mom and dad had an expectation, like, you're going to go to college. What you do after that is whatever, but you're going to go to college. Like, that's where it kind of ended for us. Um, and I just really skated through barely by the skin of my teeth, but we got there. Um, but that wasn't a thing back then. In fact, if you weren't chosen at a very young age and proven to yourself, you really didn't get much of an education. That's why we see Jesus hanging out with people like fishermen, right? Shepherds, like people who are just going and counting things, because everybody hopefully can count. Quite literally, that's all shepherds did. They hung out on stinky hills with stinky cattle, and they counted every little while to make sure they had everybody. And so that's who Jesus is speaking to. And so when he's sharing these huge truths, like what is heaven going to be like? He tells parables. He tells stories. And so that's what he does here. He says, the kingdom of heaven is, is like this wedding feast. He's given an example. He said, he said this is what it looks like. The, the, the king is throwing a wedding feast for his son. He's excited. He's invited everybody. There's a lot of excitement. They had a great rehearsal dinner, probably. But, but he's excited, and, and he said, because the king is having this huge party that lasts for days to celebrate his son having his bride. Days. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there are times that I'm hanging out with people, and it's been like three hours, and I'm tired, and I'm like, I love you, but if you could leave, that would be great, because I don't think I can hang out anymore. And these guys, these guys were hanging out for days. They would literally party, drink, and eat for days, days to celebrate. And so the king, you know, is throwing kind of a big party. And, and he's invited all these people. He's invited the, the nobles. He's invited his uh, his buddies who are out in different castles taking care of his kingdom. His homies are there. I don't think I used that word right. Um, dang, somebody's still with us. There we go. He's invited all these guests to celebrate because back in these days, and really still today, the more guests you have, the more honorable and exciting your wedding is, right? You guys ever been to a wedding where there's thousands of people, and you're like, I don't want to be here anymore. Or you're like, how does anyone know this many people? So the king would invite thousands of people to this wedding. And, and Jesus says, this is what heaven is like. And so he sends two invitations. The first invitation is to go out to those nobles, to all the right people to say, hey, come and celebrate my son and his future wife. We're going to have a shindig. It's going to be awesome. And so that would prep the people to get ready for when the messengers come and say, hey, the time is now. So they would kind of send to save the date. So there you go. Save the dates are biblical. There you are. Right? We're there. We're getting there. So sent to, to announce the feast. And then the second invitation would come when the calf was fat, when the ox was ready, when the tables were decorated, when they put the little cameras on there and said, hey, send these pictures to so-and-so. Like when all those things happen, you guys haven't been to those weddings yet. That's okay. And they would say, hey, okay, now's the time to come. Like, you're ready. Like, don't, don't wait 
Don't take your time. Like, now is the time. You've been preparing. You've been getting ready. Now is the time to come. Take the step now. Let's go right now. And so the right thing to do as an invited wedding guest would be to then go, to drop everything, go celebrate. Because nothing else was important at that time. Nothing. And so these invitations would come, and, and especially when they come from the king, it's not an opportunity. It's not something you're just like, oh, if, I'm, if I can make it. You know, like I got, I got Stranger Things 3 I got to get through before 4 comes out. I got some stuff to do, um, so I'll try to be there. No, when the king sent the invitation, you go. There was no opportunity. It, it, was, it was not an invitation. It was an expectation. But Let's go back to verse 3 for a second and see what happens here in this parable that Jesus teaches. So he sent his servant to call for those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So the king sends out an invitation, the backup, to the people who said they were going to be there And then verse 5 happens. But they, the invited people, paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And then another group of people, verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Maybe it's just me, but I think the king has some relational issues happening. Right? Now remember, this is it. He sends the first invitation out. People say, yes, we're going to be there. So he says, now's the time. The second invitation gets sent, and everybody, everybody either ignores the king, ignores him completely, or is too busy and goes and takes care of their own issues, or a select few take the messengers and destroy them, kill them. Take them out. Now, listen, if, if we were in this time period and understanding, because Here's what, here's what context does for Scripture, okay, guys? Listen, if we ever read this and we try to make it sound about us, that's called eisegesis. That's us putting ourselves into Scripture. So we call exegesis. We look at it in context and then apply it to our lives. So if we were in this time period, we would have understood the, main, the big exclamation point, red flag thing popping at us is that these guys went and took the king's messengers and killed them because they were mad about the invitation. That's a problem. In fact, everybody in this culture would have said, okay, now those people deserve death as well. Like, that's not okay. This is where we get the phrase, don't kill the messenger. You guys ever heard that before? That's why every movie you watch with, like, medieval times, there's one guy who goes to give the, the war comments, and he comes back, and it's just a headless dude running, right? And you're like, oh, they've killed the messenger. It's about to go down, right? That's what's happening here. Like, that is, that's the level of angst that's going on in this story. When they hear Jesus say this, they're kind of like, oh, my gosh, bad things are coming. Because it's not just a one-step refusal. It's not just an ignore. It's an ignore and then take action against the king. It's bad news happening. Because it was sent to them as people who were invited. And, and this refusal wasn't just like, Hey, we're a little busy. It's to say, hey, um, I want to insult you and hurt you and make it a point that I'm not going to do what you say. So 
what we find is a king who's very angry. And so if we continue to read. <clears throat> verse 9. I'm sorry, I messed up. Not verse 9. Uh, seven, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said, well, because, you know, after all, you've got to fight for your right to party. Um, again, it's biblical. <laughs> the BC boys are biblical. I can't believe I said that in church. Um, Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all, who, all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the king gets mad, says, you're going to kill my servants. He wipes them out. He kills them. He burns their cities. He takes everything away from them to show his power. And he said, okay, well, I don't need you. And so he tells his servants, hey, listen, we have this plan. They're all dead now because I killed them. <laughs> Go out of the walls and invite every person you see. And he says, don't qualify them. He says, they're good and bad. Just grab them. Just invite them to the wedding. This wedding that is prepared for nobles, for friends, for those who, who are deemed worthy by the context of the government and authority of the king. He says, go and find all the people who aren't worthy, all the ones who were uninvited, who weren't allowed to come, and bring them in. If you see a face, invite them and have them come in the wedding hall. Because they're going to they're party. They're going to have a fun time. And so that's what they do. The servants go into the streets. They find these people who aren't worthy of being the invited guests. And they say, come. Come. And so let's reset the scene. So now there's a wedding. There's a fattened calf, a fattened ox. Now listen, a fattened calf was typically enough to, to feed a whole city. Just one, just by itself, because they're big. And this, this king has prepared multiple calves and oxen. Like, he's ready to throw down. He's ready to treat them to a delicious dinner. And so they invite all these people, and the king walks in, and he sees his hall filled with people who are deemed not worthy, but who are there to celebrate his son having his bride. And it doesn't look the way the king thought it would probably doesn't smell or sound the way the king thought it should. But yet his hall is filled. The party is, is happening. The celebration cannot be stopped. And then verse 11 happens. Because right now you guys are probably like, all right, yeah, it's a really good story. People were there, like the, the, the unaffected and unworthy are hanging out, having a party. And then we see the king do something that doesn't make a lot of sense Kind of off the cuff in verse 11, this is what it says. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So basically they come and the guy's not dressed up, right? We're in TR, we can say this. You go to a wedding, he's got some cut off jorts, Dale Earnhardt t-shirt, his mullet hanging out, right? Got some grease on him. It's like, how did you get in here? You do not look the part. You don't, you don't look like you actually belong. And so the king does what the king does, and he said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. 
in that place where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, off the cuff, I know it's easy to hear that and think like, okay, that kind of goes against everything that we've heard so far. Like Jesus says, go out and get people who are unworthy. The guy shows up and the king goes and throws him out and kills him or leaves him. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But, but here's what we miss, and here's why context is so important. Because if we would understand what happens in weddings in these days, this is literally what would occur. As people came into the wedding, there was a certain way that the king would want people to dress for the occasion. And so the king would actually have his attendants hand out clothing that was proper for the moment to all the people who came. So the people didn't have to come and bring themselves all cleaned up. When they came into the quarter of the king, the king gave them things that made them valuable and worthy of being there. That's a huge shift, right? You guys hear that? He isn't bringing his own righteousness and goodness in and cleaned upness and making everything look good. Instead, the king says, now that you are here, here is what you can wear so that you know that you belong. This is a lot like when you go read the, the parable of the prodigal son, and as the, as the son is running back, the father grabs a robe and feet, and, and what else, anybody know? A ring, a signet ring, one that, that defines him as in the family, as a part of what's happening. And he says, this is your identity. It is the ring that says you are a part of this. And so when this would happen, when people would come into the wedding halls, the king would give them what it is for them to wear because it is that righteousness that, that allows them to be there, not whatever they bring in. See, the problem wasn't that somebody walked up in jorts with a mullet and a Dale Earnhardt shirt. The problem was that as it was given, he still refused it. And so the king says, hold on. Why, why aren't you dressed the way that you're supposed to be dressed? Why, don't, why, do, why do you refuse that? Why is this righteousness, this offer that I've given you, pulled you on the streets and said, come to this party? Well, why is it that I place this on you and yet you push it away and you still do exactly what you want to do? He goes, attendants, get this guy. He's not worthy. He doesn't need to be here. He doesn't get it. He's actually not doing what we've asked him to do. It's, it's kind of a huge moment. And then Jesus says, for many are called and few are chosen. So listen, because there might be these many invited guests, but, but the king selected a few who would be truly invited. A lot of people have the opportunity. But not everybody gets it. Not everybody understands. Not everybody will, will follow Jesus in the way that they're supposed to. So what does this parable mean for us? Why does any of that actually matter to us? Because I, I think that, um, well, no, actually, let me, let me push forward a little bit. There's, there's three things I want to say about this. Because the first thing that we all, whether you are here and you're a believer or you're not, whether you follow Jesus or you're struggling or you don't, one thing you need to know is that there will be a party. There will be a party. There's no doubt about that. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The king, the ruler of the free world, throwing a party to celebrate his son meeting his bride. Does anyone catch the parallels there? A little bit, little bit biblical there. He said, here's the father 
celebrating what the son has done as the son is going to get his bride and we are going to party. That is the exact same terminology that Jesus uses throughout Scripture that is all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, actually. It is throughout Scripture where it says that God the Father sends God the Son and he will take his bridegroom, his bride, excuse me, which is the church, which is the people who are followers of Jesus, and they will celebrate and party and worship together forever. Like that is the hope of the Gospels. And so the one, one thing we know is that there's going to be a party. I don't know what it looks like, but it sounds kind of awesome, little things I read here and there. The second thing is that it might not look like you expect. So part of what we're talking about this morning as we are going to dive into this video here in a little while is um, this friction that we exist in. I don't know if you've noticed, but in America, we have a very American-centric view. A little bit. Right? Like, we like go to other countries and we're like, I hope they speak English. Because that's what we've been taught. Uh, and so, listen, it, it, the party might not look like you and I expect. Um, the king goes into the streets to find the people. It's based on his invitation. And the people who would assume their place or, or not care about their invitation, they won't be there. Um, but you know what the qualifier is? They don't have to look a certain way or sound a certain way or speak a certain way or smell a certain way or dress a certain way or whatever it is. In fact, um, I, I think that a lot of times we expect this application uh, of heaven to look like a bunch of people who look and sound and think and spend and live like we do, right? Like heaven seems really safe if it's a bunch of people that look and sound and think just like me. But, but guys, here's, here's the truth of this. Heaven doesn't look like that. In fact, one of the greatest things about heaven, about eternity, is that it doesn't all look like white 36-year-old males who love the browns. It doesn't follow a white Jesus who's thin with a six-pack and does this a lot. But that's not what the feast is about. The feast is that Jesus goes out and says, all of you who are here, come and be a part of this. See, but, but again, if we go into the context of What's happening here, and Jesus is speaking to farmers and shepherds and Gentiles and, and people who aren't the chosen ones. The thought is that from then and all before history, that the people who were with God were Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews. That was it. And so here's what Jesus does. He throws all of that on its head, and he says, listen, the application of this is not that the gospel is just for Israel and for people who look and sound and believe a certain way. It's that this opportunity to follow me is extended through no matter what your history and bloodline is, no matter where you look like or where you're from, no matter what it is. He says that the gospel is not based on heritage and privilege. And if we get into a point where we ever think that our ability to be in heaven and to know Jesus is based on one of those two things, I have bad news for you. 
you are going to have a hellacious climb up the ladder of righteousness until you die and meet Jesus. And then you're going to be really surprised. But guys, we are so, oh my goodness, we are so good as churches in the South at making sure everything sounds and looks like we want and what we think it should be. You know why that is? Because we can just get mad and go somewhere else. And we can try to find somebody who's going to say things that make us feel good, that we agree with 100%. And, and, and that's just, that's not what the Lord wants. It's not what he calls us to, because heaven's going to look like a lot different than you and I probably think. There's going to be people there that you're really surprised made it. I, listen, I know people who, when, when I get there, are going to be like, really? Him? I'm just going to walk around and be like, scandal of grace, y'all. Scandal of grace. God could save a sinner like me. But, but here's, here's the thing with this, and, and this is the friction that our church chooses to exist in. Uh, this is the friction that we make a cognizant, aware decision to exist in. Is that if the, if the kingdom of heaven is going to look a lot different and be, be full of a lot of people who don't look, sound, and think exactly like me or like you, I want to practice that now so I'm not surprised when I get there. The mission of the church is to go into the streets and invite everyone, good or bad. Like, listen, church, your goal and my goal is not to qualify or disqualify someone based on what they're doing right now. And if that is your goal in church, if you want to come on a Sunday where everything is very pretty and makes a lot of sense and everyone looks just like you do and you like all the songs, I've got news for you. We're glad you're here. You're probably not going to last. Because that's not what we're about. We are in the friction. We sit in the middle. We want to fight for people and go to the street and say, hey, you can come and you can come and you can come and you can come and you can come. Because it's not my job or your job to qualify or disqualify people to the party. That's what this whole series is about. That's why it's called No Perfect People. It's not so we can be edgy and be like, hey, if you're perfect, you're not allowed here. Like, I'm sorry. That's not what we're doing. We're saying is that everything's not great all the time and that you're allowed to be here if you don't have it all figured out. And that's why we exist as a church, because we will sit in that middle gap because that's what we feel like Jesus called us to, to go and invite people in the street, good or bad. And the third thing is this, that there is only one requirement. Getting back to the guy with jorts walking around the wedding. And the king who places his righteousness. There's a, a big theological term. Who studied their SAT theological terms this morning? Anybody? Great. I'll give you one. It's called imputed righteousness. That's what this word is. It, it, and here's what it means. It means that you do not qualify yourself. You do not disqualify yourself. That King Jesus, when you come in, puts righteousness on you and then bases your qualification on that righteousness that he gives you, meaning you don't earn salvation. I got news for you. If it was about how good you were, you wouldn't qualify. You wouldn't. You know why? Because sometimes I bet you like to go and spend a little more on dinner than you should. 
right? I deserve this. Or maybe, I don't know, you speed a little bit. Anybody speed? Yeah. Anyone told someone, no, I really do like you when you really don't? Anybody been there? Yeah, Brecken, I tell you that all the time. <laughs> Just kidding, buddy. Just kidding. Yeah, because that's the reality, guys. If you could earn it, then you could lose it. And if you could lose it, you would. But instead, the king invites you to the table, says, put this on. This is how I see you, and this is your qualifier, me. So Jesus bases his qualification on him, not you. And that's why the gospel points us to humility and hope that you have a seat at the table, and we should celebrate that, not that we should point fingers at people who walk in and tell them they don't belong. That is not your call and not your goal, and it's not mine either, and I refuse to do it. Because the minute we do that, church, listen, I, I, I mean this as an encouragement and as freedom for you. The minute we do that is the minute we become the basis of righteousness, not Jesus. And if you're the basis of righteousness, you should be up here. Please get me off this platform. But you're not. But that's what imputed righteousness does. That's what this idea of gospel does, is that Jesus looks at you and says, as you come to me, place this on yourself, or I'll place it on you, rather. And then he judges you based on his righteousness, not yours. That's why you can go and invite the good and the bad off the streets to come to church. And I think, guys, that also, if I'm going to be real honest with you, that's probably why a lot of people say, like, I love Jesus, but not the church. You guys ever heard that statement? It's not a good statement. It's not a biblical statement. Because to love the church is to love Jesus. But it's probably because we've done a bad job at that. Because we've taken people and we've said, I'm sorry, you think this, or think this, or say this, or say that, or do this. Sorry, mm -mm, you don't have a place here. I would get tired of that church too. But this idea of, of imputed righteousness, the reason it's so beautiful, we sing one of my favorite songs is called It Is Well. And there's this line in it that gets me every time. And I try not to be the emotional pastor who's like, I love Jesus. But this line just gets me. And it says that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. That is what it is. That's what this king does when he sees the people and he invites the people off the streets. He places his righteousness on them. He sees their helpless estate, their inability to look, sound, and think and be worthy of being at this wedding feast. And he says, your helpless estate is covered by what I have to give you, which is everything. And then he judges them based on that. Because, church, we are called to live in the friction for the sake of people. That Jesus, through his sacrifice, has shed sufficiency for your sin. And he provided the garment necessary for you to attend the kingdom of heaven. So then the question is this, what does that demand of you? What does God say? I've got a tattoo because I'm super edgy. <laughs> Multiple tattoos. But... I, I don't have the, um, the confidence to be the guy who, like, gets a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because, like, I just love peanut butter. You know those people? They're like, why do you have that tattoo? Like, I love pepperoni pizza. That's cool. It's not me. That's all right. 
So I, I have tattoos. That, like this is uh, my God arm. This is my family arm. But on this is, is Romans 10, 9, and 10. And it's because it literally changed my life as a 16-year-old because I heard the gospel so clearly at a youth group. And, and this is what God demands of you. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For as with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is why on our banners outside you see Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Because I don't read in that moment where it says as long as you look really good or believe or think or vote this way or consider this. I, I don't see any of that. In fact, I don't think that when you get to heaven, God is going to look at you and be like, hey, how many mission trips did you go on? Was it at least seven? Hey, what did you tithe? Hey, how many times did you go serve people? I don't think any of that matters. And guys, listen, the reason that we have third Saturday, which by the way, we had like 28 people yesterday. That was incredible. So good. The reason we have third Saturday, the reason that we give and, and ask for an offering and tithe, the reason that we say serve and come join teams is not because we want you to prove how much you love God. It's because when we love God really well, when we care for him, we care for his people, that stuff comes out of us naturally, not because it's a measuring tool to say, look how good you are. Wow, you love Jesus a lot. But because it's what is beckoned by our hearts to do. That's it. So here's what God demands from you. I know you hear it a lot, man. God's mean. Church is tough. They want my stuff. No, this is what God demands of you. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. That's it. That's it. That's all. Believe with your heart, confess with your mouth. And when you do that, church, when you believe fully with everything you are, Things naturally happen and come out of you because that's what the gospel does, not because you're trying to attain the correct rules, right? There's not a third, third level of heaven that God's like, wow, you were really good. Congratulations, you get a padded seat at the table. God doesn't care about any of that. What God cares about is that as he goes out and gets people off the street and says, I don't care if you're good or bad, come, that we're standing there with them instead of condemning them out. That's what he wants. That's it. That's all. And there's four things that we, that we get from this, guys. And, and the first is this, is that Jesus, in those moments, in, in this belief, in this confession, that Jesus is willing to look past your past, your goodness or your honor, your worth is not dictated by a person. That's why grace is so scandalous. Right? Like if you want to find a way to love people, go on the TR Residence page on Facebook. That's all you got. You can, lots of opportunities to love people. But Jesus is willing to look past your past. You know why? Because he's not bound by it. Like, can we, we have to get out of the notion that Jesus operates in the way we do. Like, at about 11 o'clock, Jesus is going to go to sleep, wake up, and be like, whoo, hope today's not a doozy. He's outside the bounds of time. That's why he's not worried about your past. The second is this, that Jesus is willing to go where the people are. I'm going to say this, and um, man, I'm going to be honest with you. I wrote, I spent copious amounts of time trying to figure out how to say this next line well. Because it hurts. It's hard. 
challenging, I hope. But Jesus was willing to go where people are. And church, if your mission field only fits your comfort level, you don't have a mission field. You have a missional safe space. Because missional living always costs us something. Always. Always. And if we can't go where the people are, then we, we're living in a missional safe space. And I don't want to do that. Don't. The third thing is, is this, is Jesus is willing to rewrite our future. The, the guests of the wedding party being outside of the kingdom is what makes the party worth happening. Makes the party worth happening for might say that he invites based on his desire his righteousness and the power comes from him putting his righteousness on us and the fourth is this is that Jesus is willing to offer a place for you to belong so we're going to watch this video a second about my friend Marcus and his wife JC who's also my friend um But it's an example of why we operate the way we operate. Like why we're able and willing to operate in this friction. This hard place that doesn't make a lot of sense in the biblical south. Why we're willing to take steps that maybe other people won't. Because stories like Marcus and JC's, what you're about to see, are worth it. Check it out. If I hadn't had somebody to come down here and meet me where I was and not be willing to meet me at that point and walk with me through all of that, I have no idea where I'd be right now. I have no idea where I'd be. So my name is Marcus Jones. Um, been involved with Trailside now going on two years. I'm JC Jones, and I've been going to Trailside since the beginning, or since January, I guess. Consistently, yeah. And that, who's, who's that? Leona. We made a baby. <laughs> well, Miss Leona. Got him, mom mode. Okay, no perfect people. No perfect people. Presenting. Oh, I had very limited um, interaction with church growing up. I um, went to church a couple of times with my grandmother before she passed away. And um, I mean, that was like really after I was five years old, there was like nothing. There was a lot of stuff that happened even while I was in high school uh, that started making me question stuff. Um, so I guess, yeah, the biggest thing that kind of hit was um, in March of 2009, um, uh, my mom got shot and I was the one that found her. And, you know, a piece of me died that day. I didn't have any sort of community. I didn't have any sort of ownership in it anymore. I felt that I was damned that my family was, was damned to just be continuing to endure suffering and loss and nothing that we ever kind of set forward trying to do 
whatever come to fruition by by following it. It's like I didn't feel like he cared, and so why should why should I care if if I went to do something that was viewed as not the right path per what the church was saying? Why should I care? Never thought I would be a pastor's wife because I. I just kind of always thought that I was one of those people that just didn't, I didn't fit the mold for Christianity, so there there was no room for me in that world. Um, the long and skinny of it is just, I, I felt like I needed some type of a path working, some type of religion, some type of something that gave me some some control over life because so many things had happened where Everything was out of my control. And then one day, you know, JC and I were like, all right, cool, let's go, let's go hang out at 13. You know, Josh is working and uh, get out there. And there's oh, uh, Granted, we hadn't been active in any kind of community. At that point? In years. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. We, we kind of went solitary in our own, in own practice and everything there for years, but after we came back from Florida. <laughs> but. Here we go, I'm walking into 13 Stripes and there's this guy sitting at the bar and Josh is like, hey, you should meet this guy. And uh, want to be in, be in Sean. I mean, I, I was going, all everything that I had re, you know, researched on my own, everything that I had, I was so convinced of the reasons why I should not um, not ever give church another, another try um, out of defensiveness. Sean never once met me with anything other than grace same deal you know with jace you know and we our joke about that was uh <laughs> he had no problem coming to saturnalia <laughs> and talking with us and that was kind of the walking walk away joke from that that uh that night and um you know this i very strongly feel that the spirit was there with sean that night because it kind of it kind of woke up that desire for me again after that night talking with Josh, talking with Sean. That was like July like 18th of last year. And um, I started coming to Trailside two weeks after that. I, I already feel like, for me at least, I felt like I was a part of the flock and I was wandering. I was just way over there. And, um, you know, shepherds, they go after them, you know, way over there or not. And I feel like I was putting all this pressure on myself that I had to be way back over here now. And I, I had to run as far back as I had wandered. I was I was in there, man, and I just don't want people to I don't want people to view me weird because of that or think that you know I don't know, just just look at me different, you know? I don't want that to happen. What was that like coming into coming into I mean a trail side, but like what was that like coming into church with that background? Oh terrifying. I, for it was absolutely it was for me it was terrifying. 
Like, I was afraid that, I mean, somebody would turn around and hear, like, oh, you were, you were pagan. Like, yep. And it's like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, there's a lot. <laughs> and then you have to, this feeling of, like, having to sit there and defend, like, you know, the path I was on, what I was doing, why I was doing it and everything. I felt like I, I was always having to be guarded and have to be just, like, have that answer at the hip of excusing it. Like, oh, this is where I was. Please don't disown me. You know, please give me a chance. You know, I kind of felt like I, I immediately, when I came in there, I had to, I had to prove something to show that I, I was worth being in the flock again. You know, if that makes any kind of sense. I would not be where I am today if it were not for where I was. If I had not been imperfect, I would not have met Josh. I would not have met Sean. There would be, there would have been no 13 Strikes conversation that night. There would be no trail side. You know, my, that valley, that imperfection of where I was, that everything, the life being as upside down as it was there, that broken mess, I would not have the things that I have in me now, the experiences that I have to be able to empathize with people the way that I can empathize with people. You know, I I wouldn't understand the things that I understand about my life today and why God put me through the things that he did so I can affect, hopefully affect change, not discipline of myself, but be a better person, better husband, a better pastor, but also help walk and disciple with other people that are going through the same types of things. You know, and I think of everybody else, you know, all these other people out there in the world that are going through things the same way and probably feel just as isolated and probably feel just as alone. And I hope that I'll have the opportunity to meet them along that way, to tell them the same and to be able to be a light of hope in that same way. You know, that's, that's what no perfect people means to me is being redeemed from that and even in that brokenness being used to still serve his purpose. The, uh, the exciting part of that video isn't just that Marcus and Jace follow and love Jesus, but um, in two weeks, we're actually gonna have the privilege of, of baptizing JC here as well. And mother favorite thing is that like the Lord gave them a sweet little girl named Leona who is now 12 days old, Marcus. Um, yeah, there's Marcus back there. Uh, 12 days old and that her legacy is one of the gospel. Her legacy is now with Jesus. I want to leave you guys with this morning as we wrap up. It's a pretty famous verse. A lot of you have probably heard it, but it's Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It's known as the Great Commission. <clears throat> this is what it says. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The thing we get messed up there is that go therefore doesn't mean that we're supposed to stop where we're at and then venture out. If you go and study the Greek, 
It's actually porethendus. Porethendus. Boom. That's how you say it. I'm very fancy. And here's what it means. It means the literal translation is, as you have now been sent, continue to make disciples as you go. See, if you follow Jesus, you've already been sent. You are to continue to go, and, and your only obligation is to be ready. And so here's the last question I have you this morning, church. Are you willing to sacrifice your own religious predispositions about how the gospel fits in our lives for the sake of other people's eternities? It's a hard question. But when we are, and when we do, legacies change, and little 12-year-old babies are raised in homes that know Jesus. Right, Father. thank you that you're not ever just done with us. Thank you that um, God, that you allow us to exist in this, this fray, this friction, this kind of area where where mission is valued and where calling is important and God, that you are calling our church to be different and um, to be different when those moments are fearful, to be different when those moments are filled in trepidation, to be different when those moments are filled with joy. But Father, that you call us to these things because you have great plans, not just for us, but for your people. And so, Lord, as we go out today, my heart, my, my prayer that you would make us people like your servants who go out into the streets and invite everyone to the wedding. Lord, not because it's easy or, or not because it's just what we're supposed to do, but because you give us the opportunity to do that because there are people who need it. <clears throat> there are people like Jason Marcus who, because, because Josh was willing to exist in this gray area, and invite them to the wedding. That in two weeks, we're going to baptize James. That we're going to see a, a daughter grow into a home where you are valued, where you are life. God, that you took a pagan and that now he's training to be a pastor. And the only way that happens is when you invite people who don't look like they fit and you give them the garment of righteousness and you count us worthy based on yourself and not our own issues and collapses of faith, but instead you give us a place to belong and you call us to something greater than us. And so, Father, my prayer, our heart, is that you would take out of us what we need to have taken out of us and you would put into us this gospel of grace, this mission, this hope, and that we would not falter. But, Lord, that when we do, we would know that you pick us up because when you see us, you see us as yours. 